It became the 29th state in the U.S. in 1846. With the Missouri River on the west and the Mississippi on the east, it's a state with very diverse agricultural production, making it the food capital of the world. We're headed to Iowa. No, I'm not running for president. We're talking about Iowa's cattle industry today. Most of us believe that we were placed here by God to leave this place a better place than when we got here. Brad Coima is my guest today. He's a farmer, feeder, and commodity broker from Iowa. As we learn today about the heart of the cattle industry, industry in the state, the independent farmer feeder, and how that segment evolved. I think we're driven a little bit by, we got to figure out a way to walk this crop off of our place, in other words, through livestock. We'll discuss how they market their cattle to the packers, the changes in the types of cattle being fed today, the ethanol industry, and the rural grassroots elements entwined in their industry from the people to the cattle. It's all about the cattle industry of the Hawkeye State on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Welcome you here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Thanks for joining us here on the program today. This is episode 114. So if you miss something here, you step away from the radio and you want to go back and listen to it again, you can sure go to our podcast site at workingranchradio.com. You can download it there. You can share it. By the way, you can also listen to any previous shows that we've had as well. And if you like a show, let us know. Either hit the like button or leave a comment. And if you have questions about something you heard, you can sure send me an email at Justin dot working ranch at gmail.com well it has started here on the x-ring yeah i'm talking about calvin yeah we got things underway last week with the heifers they get going and uh, so kind of a slow start but things are going to be picking up here pretty soon luckily we've had some pretty good weather so very thankful for that cows are going to start here towards the end of the month first part of may so hopefully we'll have some decent weather for that we'll hear from meteorologist don day towards the end of a program when we take a look at our long-term weather. On our program today, though, as you heard in the intro, we're going to be talking about the Iowa cattle industry. Now, Brad Coima, who's a commodity futures broker by day and also a farmer feeder with his son as well, is going to be joining me to talk about his experience in it. Of course, his grandfather was a feeder, farmer feeder, all the way through his dad and himself and now his son, but also how that element got established in the state of Iowa. As we know, a very fertile soil there that grows, has a lot of production to it. Agriculture is a huge element to that whole entire state. But within that agricultural industry, we look at the cattle side of things here today and also its impact when it comes to the rest of us outside of the state of Iowa. So a lot to talk about here today. I think there's going to be some very interesting tidbits of knowledge that you'll learn about the Iowa cattle industry that I can guarantee you did not know when we started our program here today. So be sure to join us for that. Real quick, a thank you to our sponsors today the American Semental Association and they've done quite a bit of work here pushing the cattle industry forward with genetic information and providing actual performance records combining all of that to give you the producer predictability so that you can make some very good management decisions. Semgenetics profit through science. Find out more at Semental.org and Allflex. Cattle identification and record keeping should be easy so tie your visual tag, your EID tag and the genetic 
synthetic data to one management number with AllFlex match sets. Learn more at AllFlexUSA.com. Well, last week, if you joined us, you know the captain, Tim O'Byrne, took a little bit of a siesta as we didn't hear from him for his typical Tim's two cents, but this week he's back bigger and better than ever. So here's this week's edition of Tim's two cents. Hey, Justin. Hey, everybody out there in Working Ranch Radio Land. A special shout out to all you calvers out there. I know it's been tough. This has been a really cranky year for a lot of you, but hang in there. Keep the faith. And uh, in the meantime, folks, check out the latest issue of Working Ranch Magazine, April, May 2023. Go to page 48, Rancher's Journal. This is our probably our most uh, read feature in the magazine over the years. The 12-Day Journal. And this one's kind of special. Keeping up with three calving seasons on the J&J Taylor Cattle Company in Texas. And this is written by Joe Chaddock. And it's just a great example of ingenuity and how this uh, company takes their 250 black brangus mother cows and 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 they got they run a couple hundred yearlings depending on the weather up there. And how they've created a system that uh, provides marketable beef at the times that they need that to happen check it out page 48 ranchers journal back to you justin i know that last show on land trust last week was just fantastic i just got the wheels turning in my mind you know how many different things you could do uh with a setup like that so check out that show justin kind of fill him in a, a little bit on that that was a good show good concept sounds like a solid group of folks back to the show All right. Thanks, Captain. And yeah, folks, if you have not had a chance to go back and listen to last week's show, episode 113, boy, I'd encourage you to go and do that. Uh, It was my conversation that I had with Nick DeCastro. Now, he is the founder and CEO of Land Trust. Now, this is not, we're not talking conservation easements. No, no. You need to listen to the show to find out, really go in depth about it. But also, I'm going to tell you, this is, if, if you're a farmer, rancher, or landowner, and you're looking for practical ways to add income to your operations through your land resources from recreational mindset well, LandTrust.com is doing that as they're connecting landowners with respectful sportsmen that are wanting and looking to pay for access to your land. Now, it's not like a government program, leases or outfitters. LandTrust.com, they partner with ranchers, landowners to help build a valuable new income from sportsmen while keeping the landowners, you, in full control. Things like uh, if you want to go back and listen to last week's show, we touch on things that I have a concern about, which was liability. Well, they have a one million dollar general liability property protection participant injury coverage all in that liability package also as you as the landowner you stay 100 percent in control of everything how much it's going to cost when it's available the property rules and when it comes down to it this is purely a request so you get to choose who you allow on your property and the activities are endless everything from hunting of course comes to mind from fishing to rv camping or food foraging Now, if you don't know what that is, listen to the show. Also, how about farmer ranch tours or mountain biking or camping? The list is endless. So check it out for yourselves. Landtrust.com is the website. And if you're a landowner looking to monetize the recreational assets of your land, check it out and let them know that you heard it here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Well, stay with us. When we come back, we're going to get into our featured topic today as we talk about the Iowa cattle industry. We'll be back with more on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this.
You know, big cows come with big feed bills, which is why smart genetic selection can pay off in your cow herd. Did you know Simmental-influenced cows are an average 74 pounds lighter at maturity than Angus-sired counterparts, according to a recent U.S. Meat Animal Research Center study? Now, while Simmental is sized for more efficient gains, 20-year genetic trend lines also show the breed offers reliable calving ease, early growth, and cow longevity. That's a balanced herd built for profit. Sim Genetics, giving you more per head, period. Stand strong, Simmental. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. As we head down to our featured topic here for today, and uh, we're going to learn a little bit more about the Iowa cattle industry. And this sort of stems, uh, if you remember following us last summer, we did an interview about the Florida cattle industry following some of the big hurricanes that they had down there. And we took that opportunity to learn kind of the history and the heritage of the Florida cattle industry and how it plays its part in today's industry. We're going to do the same today about Iowa. I thought this would be a good opportunity from time to time throughout the year to focus on different states and uh, Iowa definitely known for uh, feeding an awful lot of cattle for part of our cattle industry so we're going to learn a little bit about that and where the heritage of that kind of came about so joining us today to talk a bit more is Brad Coima he's a commodities future broker also a farmer feeder his office out of Sioux Center Iowa but uh, the farms are out of Rock Valley and Brad thanks for joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Hey, I'm glad to. Uh, thanks for having me on. Look forward to it. Well, I appreciate your patience through some of the technical difficulties of getting this interview done here today. Uh, first, before we get into the heritage, the history of, of where the industry's at, I, I want to learn more about you because I know you currently, you and your son, uh, do some uh, farm and feed as well and have been doing that. That's part of what's your ranching or your, your family's heritage for, for many years. But uh, first of all, let's learn a little bit more about you because I think that'll help put into context some of our conversation that we have here today. Sure, I'll, I'll give it a try. Um, I would say this, that I, you know, my story is not unusual or not untypical of, of, of a lot of uh, homegrown people from around here. But I, so to give you a little bit of backdrop, you know, specific to the cattle side of things, <clears throat> when I was 16 years old, I was a sophomore in high school and uh, 1974, uh, and my dad told me that you're old enough uh, to start feeding some cattle. Uh, so, uh, he bought a load of cattle and I fed a pen, uh, with him. Um, they were Hereford cattle from the shovel dot ranch. Uh, and what I remember most about it was that one load of cattle in 1974 made a lot of money, something like $220 a head or something like that. Me being, um, a, uh, outspoken and stupid, uh, <laughs> teenager. I, I told my dad, I said, well, the only thing we did wrong here, dad, is we don't have enough of them. I don't know if any other cattleman can relate to mm-hmm, that or not. Mm-hmm. But so the next year we bought, I bought two loads and price freeze. If you got any older listeners like myself, they will probably remember that. <laughs> uh, and, and uh, we pretty much gave it all back and then some, um, but so that was kind of my baptism by fire initially into the cattle feeding thing. But my, uh, father, uh, fed cattle, uh, got, into, got this little award even that he it was a pioneer shipper to the Sioux City Stockyards, mm-hmm. uh, which meant that he had hauled uh, fed cattle there for 50, 5 consecutive years, um, which was great memories for our whole family. Uh, so in 1980, when I graduated, graduated from college, I thought I better have a job. I thought I would try this brokerage deal on. Really didn't know if that's what I wanted to do, but I thought I would learn it better if I would do it. Uh, and that will be 43 years ago, hmm. um, in June here since I started that. So, uh, 
Uh, yeah, it's kind of a combination of two things, although the, uh, there certainly is some crossover benefit, I think, to both of them. Uh, obviously, we do an awful lot with cattle marketing and hedging. Um, and then, of course, I do have some manure on my boots because I do feed some cattle. <laughs> yeah. So, like you said, you, you currently feed cattle. You and your son uh, doing this at your place, uh, which you, I mentioned earlier, that's around the farms there at Rock Valley. Yes, uh, he and I farm uh, some crop ground together as well, uh, and then feed at mostly at three different father-son sites where they also custom feed for okay. us as well on the extra cattle. And, um, you know, very typical for this area, northwest Iowa, uh, would be, uh, you know, these two to 4,000 head feed yards, uh, which uh, is run by a father-son type arrangement uh, because they can kind of handle the workload if they're efficient, and most of these guys are here, they're hard workers. Uh, and, and so that'd be very, very typical of this Northwest Iowa area, where, by the way, I think something like in Iowa, I, I'm also a member of Iowa Cattlemen, so I get some of this data, but something like 80% or something like that of the fed cattle, not the cow calf, but the fed mm-hmm. cattle in Iowa are up in this uh, corner of the state here. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I know cattle, you know, the cattle on feed numbers, uh, the state of Iowa usually is around, around in the fourth ranking in the country in terms of the amount of cattle uh, on feed just in that state alone. Brad, let's let's back up. Let's start back uh, from when cattle first started showing up there in, in, in Iowa. Of course, you know, that side of, of the country, you know, things happen a little sooner than it did out west for uh, where we see more of the arid climate, uh, drier type climate. But uh, when we start from where, when we started seeing kind of that farmer feeder element starting to happen. Uh, let's back up to early heritage and the elements that we would see in the Iowa cattle industry from many years ago. Yeah, I think I was thinking about that question um, and how best to answer it. I, I, you know, you, you live in it and, and it just kind of evolves around you and you maybe don't stop to take a breath. But I, as I reflect on how to answer that best, I, I think it starts probably with the quality of the land that we happen to be mm-hmm. blessed with here. High productivity. It usually rains. Uh, not last year, but <laughs> it, it usually it usually rains, and and we're able to you know raise a pretty nice crop. Now, okay, don't forget now. Okay, corn seven dollars or something like yeah. that, um, which is plenty high if I'm a feeder, which I am. But there was many many years where corn just laid there uh, at $2. Uh, A lot of my career as a broker, I mean, it sat there. So, I mean, folks, uh, I think we're driven a little bit by, we got to figure out a way to walk this crop off of our place. In other words, through livestock. So, you know, we had the ability to source feed um, and then, and and also had the work ethic to be one willing to take care of it and to diversify. Uh, and, And I think, Justin, that the ethanol business probably really put the spur under, uh, you know, under the horse here. You know, when we had the ability to, to, to utilize the DDGs and stuff better than, say, uh, and cheapen up our, our feed costs a little bit better than, say, some commercial feed yard like in Texas or something like that. But to me, it's the work ethic of these family farmers, the culture that they get up in the morning and they expect to work hard. And we're willing to take that, you know, and, and, and move it from, um, you know, starting out where they were very diversified, probably had all kinds of livestock, small row crop. And then it just kind of morphed into a, uh, you know, let's have a small feed lot. Let's chop some silage. Let's put up some ground ear corn. Let's, let's see if we can feed this corn and, and, and add, you know, some value here uh, through cattle. And, and you got to like cattle like you do. I know you do. I, I, I see the backdrop of your picture. I beautiful you know i mean either you either you're kind of a cattle person or you are not uh and and i love the cattle guys because they're independent you know and uh because they are willing to work hard 
Well, and I think too, and we talked before we started uh, the show here a little bit about, you know, you've had a lot of uh, represented a lot, uh, the independent type cattle feeders, which is what you see in these farm type states. And you keep mentioning too, the fact that they're willing to work hard to do this. And, and I think that element in the state, it's something that is very unique to Iowa in a way, wouldn't you think? Oh, for sure. I, and, 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 you know, I am reminded of that when I get, I'm a little bit involved politically with the ICA and NCBA and, and, and some of the beef groups. And, and you know, I, I have to remind myself that, you know, there's, here's a corporate feeder that's got 300,000 cattle um, and maybe doesn't have manure on his boots either. Right. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and drives through it once in a while. All the work is, 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 uh, is, you know, parted out to, to something, someone else. And, and, uh, you know, to me, that pride that you're raising something that's benefiting. Um, and, 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 you know, if, if you didn't say, if somebody said, Oh yeah, whatever. I heard the interviewed Brad. Uh, I, I would hope that they would remember that I'm fighting for that independent guy to stay alive. He doesn't, we don't ask for a favor here. We're just asking for, for a fair level playing field. Do, do you mind if I tell a little story about how this really works no, in Northwest go, Iowa? Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. Go ahead, Brad. Okay. So 2014, I live in a little town called Rock Valley. Well, I, I live on a farm near a small mm-hmm. town, 3,500 people by Rock Valley, Iowa. The Rock River uh, runs through the edge of that town. We had a 200-year flood. Uh, we were something like 19, almost 20 feet above flood stage, if you can fathom that. Uh, over a third of the town was impacted. Okay? So what happens in a small town? I'll tell you what happens. Something like 67 different guys with their payloaders came from every small feedlot in the area. They came with skid loaders. They came with side dumps that they used to haul manure to build dikes, to fill sandbags. It, it is a small, t- you know, it's, it's, maybe it sounds corny, but it's not. It's a small town pulling together, uh, but using the resources that they have, uh, not waiting for some government agency to come and solve their problems. Uh, it was really, truly amazing to me, you know, uh, to see, that and, and, and that's the lifestyle uh, that I will fight for, that way of life, uh, that ability to raise a living like that and then pool together to help each other. It was to me it's important and that's why people like us here like to live in a small town like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Brad Coima is my guest here today as we learn a little bit more about the Iowa cattle industry and not only about what it's made up of, as you were, as he was talking there, a lot of uh, independent type cattle feeders, farmer feeders, uh, much like he and his son also do. Uh, and what his dad did ahead of that, his granddad did ahead of that as well. Well, stay with us because when we come back, Brad touched a little bit about how the ethanol industry changed some of the makeup and, the, and how things work from a feeding perspective from them as independent cattle feeders we're going to talk more about that and its impact in the rest of the industry as well when we return on the working ranch radio show Set up the next generation for a productive lifetime with Zinpro Avela 4. Achieve productive success in your cows with 20% increased conception rate and a 16-day tighter calving interval. Calves from cows supplemented with Zinpro hit the ground running with improved immunity and 28 more pounds at weaning. Allow your cows and calves to perform to their full potential with Zinpro Avela 4. 
And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Our topic here today is on the Iowa cattle industry. My guest to join me and talk a little bit more about it is Brad Coima. Now, he is a commodity futures broker, but uh, in addition, he and his son also farmer feeders as well. And Brad, something you talked about a little bit ago uh, was how the ethanol industry, when that evolved, how that made a big, uh, some significant difference to what you all do there from the feed standpoint um, and so I want to talk about that because I, I can say that from those of us that are not in those corn states I will tell you I mean I'm gonna be honest with you the ethanol has kind of mixed reviews uh, in a mindset and so I want you to explain from from your perspective from from the Iowa cattle guy um, the impact that the ethanol industry and and that push has has done to the cattle industry there in Iowa well, it's a tremendous question, and, and, and Justin, I tell you what, I, I would be dishonest if I didn't have some of that same conflicted yeah. feeling, yeah. frankly. You know, uh, you know, if, if you, for somebody like me that feeds a lot more cattle than the corn they raise, um, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd say that this, this high-priced environment that was created, well, I mean, about 35% of what we raise makes ethanol. Mm-hmm. You know, we got three main uses, exports, which is a distant third, and then the feed component and then the industrial component which is ethanol and then it's it's kind of flip-flops back and forth here the last couple of years which which is the bigger user of corn whether it's the feed usage and you can combine all the other livestock elements whether you're talking about turkeys or hogs or chickens all of that added together is still less than beef cattle eat corn is still the the beef is the cattle is still the number one consumer of corn so it's a big deal. You know, all of a sudden you've got a 30-year demand almost going to make ethanol. And um, I remember oh, 20 years ago, I was sitting at a meeting when they were going to first build the first ethanol plant, which I drive by every day on my way from my, my house here to the office. Mm-hmm. Um, an old guy stood up and he said, uh, where are you going to get the corn? And everybody laughed at him, you know. But I remember sitting there thinking like, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. really? I mean, you're talking about all these bushels we're going to consume. We're a huge importer of corn where I am in northwest Iowa, even though we have wonderful land and raise a lot of corn because of the usage. Um, I think there's something like nine ethanol plants within 100 miles of where I sit, and then you have all that feed usage going. So it's it's a big deal. Now, okay, trying to speak of it <laughs> positively because I struggle too with something that without a subsidy can't stand by its own. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Yep, you know, yep. I mean, it, 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 I struggle with that myself. But so what it's done, though, for the feeder is we have – we have the ability to use the byproduct, right? So, you know, we have the ability at least most times to cheapen up our ration a little bit with a very palatable, very good product to, 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 to throw in our ration. And, and so it's maybe given us a little bit of a feed advantage over somebody, say, in Texas or Kansas uh, that just, you know, doesn't, they don't raise enough corn to have the ability to have the ethanol plants there. Um, now, there is no doubt that without the ethanol plants, this, this price of corn would be in a different place, in my opinion. So it, it's a bit polarizing, you know, even from an Iowa standpoint, I, I think that the, you know, the official stance would be that it's added value to the land. It's added, you know, some net worth to the people that are on it. And a lot of them are diversified where they raise corn and feed cattle. And, and so I think, you know, at the end of the day, most people would say it's a win, um, you know, but uh, it's not without its controversy, even around here a little bit, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. 
Well, it's interesting to hear that perspective because uh, even as far out as I am in northeastern Wyoming, we still, I mean, a lot of our cake that we feed, range cake that we feed during the wintertime for the last several years for me has been DDG based. And so we found some value as far out as here. It's just the trucking, <laughs> the trucking the last two years has been ridiculous. So on it. Well, yeah, that's interesting. That, that, that is interesting. You're right. You know, so you put in a regional imbalance of the supply of corn because we had a drought in Nebraska and Iowa where we use so much of it. And then on top of it, you know, exacerbate that by the uh, the freight, uh, which is crazy high. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just, you know, compounded another bigger problem and, and created some basis issues too, which yeah. is a whole other component of that feed side that probably people don't understand. That's the one place there where, where Justin, we can, where I live, can be much more competitive as a rule uh, to the guys in the south. I would say there's places in Texas that are probably 80 cents to a dollar a bushel higher than we are. And most of that's because of the freight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's let's jump back a bit. Again, I asked you this at the break uh, if we wanted to talk a little bit about this. And when we look at our cattle industry and the how it evolved, in fact, I had done a show a while back. I don't remember when it was, uh, where we were looking at where the, uh, the, the packing industry sort of evolved from. I was right in the middle of when the packing industry really started. And of course, we saw when, when refrigeration technology became a little bit more uh, usable, it really evolved into different things. But when you look at where where Iowa fits in, in terms of the packing industry, it's right in the middle of when things really kind of got started. Well, absolutely. And it's uh, it's kind of a misnomer. I, you know, I talked to some people around the, the cattle belt, you know, that that you know, think that the sun rises and sets on a, on, on Amarillo, Texas. That's the only place that they kill cattle. You know, it, it's really not that way at all. Um, and, uh, and we don't even sell cattle that way, uh, by the way. Um, I would mention that. So like where I sit here, Dakota city is about 60 miles, 65 miles away. Omaha is another hundred, almost a hundred past that, uh, two packing plants there. Uh, I, one of my brothers sells fat cattle. That's what he does for a living. He, you know, he, pulls the cattle together, shows them to all the packers and tries to get the best, negotiate the best bid, cash bid. Um, we sell cattle to Schuyler, Nebraska, to Grand Island, Nebraska. Uh, there, there's weeks where he'll sell to five or six different packers, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's a couple of little ones popped up. Aberdeen, South Dakota's got one. There's one in central Minnesota that's got one. There's one in up, upper Iowa beef that kills 250 or 300 cattle a day. Uh, one would be surprised at the ability to, to sell cattle here. Now I say that, but we're in a great environment right now where we've got leverage because the numbers yeah. are a little bit tighter. Yeah. You back this thing up two years and you got all these formula cattle and all these contracted cattle, these captive supply cattle, I call them. Mm-hmm. You know, when the packer had that kind of leverage, which is what's wrong with our industry, by the way, in my opinion, in a large way, mm-hmm. there's too many captive supply cattle. Then it's a little harder, you know, uh, but the other thing that I think I should bring up for a, a listener that's not in Iowa is something called FOB, uh, free on board. Mm-hmm. We sell, I sell 99% of my cattle live FOB. The packer pays the freight. So it's, it's, it's not a really, I don't care if they go to Grand Island or if they go to Dakota City or if they go to Arc City, Kansas. Um, because the the packer has to come up here and he's got to deal with doing the freight and it's a live bid. So we don't have this, what are they going to yield business and how are we going to weigh them and all other stuff. They're weighed with a 3% on the near scale and sold FOB. So with the, I'm pretty proud of the fact that we do it that way up here mm-hmm. uh, and mostly cash negotiated, which I also am proud of. 
one thing that we could do a little better here is maybe hold the packer to making sure these cattle get harvested on time. In the south, if they buy them, they're dead in seven days. Here, sometimes you'll wait two, three, four weeks sometimes for the packer to pick them up. Oh, really? We can do a better job of that, and I think we're going to try to do that. Yeah. Well, and, and just that element you're talking about there with the earlier, a bit ago, when you were talking about cash trade versus, uh, you know, uh, yield trade and some of those kinds of things, that topic in itself, I know there's some, there's some issues in regards to that. And it's interesting that a lot of you guys there are doing on cash trade. I think that's interesting to know. I, that's not something I, I really realized. Real quick, uh, Brad, something I want to talk about. Uh, when we talk about the meat packing industry, one of the names, if you think about it, of course, we all, everything's an acronym, so we never hardly remember what they actually stood for. But IBP was a big company that a lot of us heard about or knew about, or you know, you remember hearing that when you're talking about the meat packing industry. Of course, that stands for Iowa beef packers. And one of the things that they revolutionized in the 1960s was just exactly what you were talking about. And that was them going out to the maybe the bigger places that had a lot of cattle for sale, uh, maybe in Western Nebraska or Wyoming or Montana and Nevada and places like that and buying cattle and then bringing them to Iowa to feed out. And that was something that they kind of started in the 1960s. Yep, you're right. It's uh I can remember my father talking about the old days. You'd go to the sale barn, right? And these different commission, or you'd take them to a terminal mm-hmm. like Sioux City or Sioux Falls. And you'd have four, five, six different commission firms, uh, you know, trot these different packers down the alley. And they decide that, you know, those cattle are worth 25 cents, a hundred more. Twenty. I mean, it was a different market than, you know, a lot lower market and a lot of different price fluctuations. And then I can remember my dad talking about when they went started to go away from that and these Packer buyers, mm-hmm. IBP buyers, uh, would actually physically come out to your place and bid on the cattle. Uh, and I can remember my dad kind of lamenting that he didn't think this was a good trend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he was, and I would say he was probably right, even though I don't know how he would have got in front of it. Um, you know, now that's morphed to some days where you only have one buyer that'll come out and take a look. Uh, but, you know, you, you're dabbling in the territory, too, of these you know, Packer-owned, and they'll tell you that they really don't, um, whatever. Uh, but, you know, cattle that are committed in one way or another, maybe is a polite way to do it, <laughs> say it. Uh, the, 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 an acronym that use, they use here now is AMA, Alternate Marketing Arrangement. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it just slides off the tongue, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> makes you feel all warm and tingly. Uh, but, 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 you know, for, for someone like me that thinks that it's important to establish price, to have price discovery, yeah. uh, and that's done through negotiation, uh, you know, I, I, I get it. There's a place maybe for a few cattle that the packer needs to tie up, but not all of them. Uh, otherwise, there's no point in, in, you know, the analogy I always use is, is I'll ask somebody like you who's, a, who's got an ag background of, of what, what's a broiler worth? Nobody knows. Yeah. There's no reason to know. It's yeah. fully integrated. Most people can't even tell you what a hog is worth anymore because mm-hmm. only 1% of them get negotiated for. I really don't think that the independent cattle producer wants that. I don't think the independent, I know that the independent cattle producer around here doesn't want to be involved in that kind of a business. But uh, that's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very it's polarizing. There's yeah. no doubt about it. Yeah, it is. And, and at the end of the day, I mean, we all want the best price for the product that we've got. The concern that we've seen in our industry was when too few players get too much of, of the power, it does it does have some concern. Well, an oligopoly is, uh, you know, what we have or for uh, basically four entities control 85% of the stuff. It's dangerous. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, there, there, there's very few 
industries that thrive in that kind of an environment. And that's why I think, you know, we need to be careful. Mm-hmm. You bet. My guest today, Brad Kwama, he is a commodities future broker, also farmer feeder in uh, Northwest Iowa. We're continuing to talk more about the Iowa cattle industry. We've got one more segment where Brad's going to hang with us and we're going to talk a little bit more about it when we come back here on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Every year you pick your replacement heifers. Some become profitable cows, others disappoint. How can you make more reliable selections? Genetic testing. Commercial cow-calf producers like you are using Inherit Select from Zoetis. You gain valuable predictions, including cow fertility, size and soundness, feed efficiency, growth and carcass merit, as well as easy-to-use economic indexes. This improves your selection, breeding, and marketing decisions. Request a call from InheritProgress.com and ask about free TSUs to get you started. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. Our topic today is on the Iowa cattle industry. We're learning a little bit more about that. And uh, if you don't walk away from this interview with anything, know this is that uh, a really big share of that state has a lot to do with putting cattle on feed. In fact, as I talked about before, it usually sits about fourth in the nation in terms of total cattle on feed. Over 6,000 feedlots in the state, 28,000 cattle operations, and including more than 19,000 farms with beef cows. So really, it is pretty significant to our total U.S. cattle industry as a whole. And as we were hearing from Brad, just the significance and the focus that they have in that state, just in the in the mindset of uh, feeding cattle. That's just a, a really big part of that. Uh, not to say there's not cow-calf uh, cow operations uh, in the state of Iowa. They definitely rank, uh, in fact, I think they're about 10th in total beef cows. So there again in itself, uh, very substantial when it comes to looking at it from a from a national statistic on another side note i thought this would be interesting to share did you know that iowa is the birthplace of the polled hereford breed yeah it was warren gammon back before 1900 that had went to trans mississippi fair in omaha nebraska and he saw polled cattle and he thought to himself at the same time that uh, it'd be nice if the hereford cattle were the same way but he started with 11 head and it was a registry that began in 1901 and then it was 1907 was the start of the American Polled Hereford Association and it was in 1995 when they merged with the American Hereford Association. So just a little side note of history in regards to the beef cattle industry for the state of Iowa from a breed's perspective and Brad is interesting when you said the first pen of cattle you bought in, in, in high school was a pen of Hereford cattle and I know there's a there's a lot of heritage of that breed in our states like the state of Iowa. Uh, Brad, when we get into where we're at here today, I know we were talking a little bit ago about uh, IBP, Iowa Beef Packers, that was in the 1960s. Where are we at? Where's the, in the state of Iowa, what, what, what's happening there? I know we've seen a lot more packing plants. You alluded to it a bit ago, uh, come online here. Anything happening here in the next year or so there in the state of Iowa? You put a smile on my face when you gave that Hereford story because I, I, I thought, uh, sorry, I'm going to digress a little bit. That's I thought, fine. You know, you, yeah, it's like a full circle. I got two of my brothers exclusively feed Hereford cattle now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's interesting because, you know, there is niche markets for those two. There's one particular packer that uh, has got a, you know, a, a, 
they'll pay a premium for uh, for those kind of cattle. So I thought to myself, that is, I never really put that together, that I started with that, and now here we are back yeah. to it again <laughs> in almost 50 years. So it, it's been it's been a bit interesting, you know. I, I you know to, to your to your second part of that that comment, I, I I would tell you that three, four, five years ago, you'd go to some of these national meetings, and the cattle guy would they they expected places like where I am to you know dry up and blow off the map, can't compete, don't have enough packing houses, not big enough, not efficient enough is the word that they like to use, and. Um, it's it's been interesting to for me, you know, as a numbers geek, I'm a broker too, as you said, um, to see that the last several cattle on feed reports, one of the only states to have a number of increase in cattle on feed is indeed Iowa. Mm-hmm. And the states that are seeing the big decline are states like Texas and Kansas. You know, a little bit ago we were talking about the cost of feed. You know, people say to me, how in the world does that work? How can they pay a dollar more for corn down there than, than, than we have to pay? Well, I can tell you what, it don't work. Um, and, and that's being reflected in seeing some of this migration of the cattle uh, back to, to our areas and, and some of this increasing. And some of that, you know, has been a little, a little political help. Uh, there's been, you know, some tax incentives and stuff like that to the startups of these small uh, smaller uh, packing houses, which is great. Uh, competition is, is important. So I, it's been... You know, to me, if you move the cattle back here, the packer will follow because that's his way of life. If it's productive for him, and our cattle are of higher quality too. So I, I think that problem is kind of taking care of itself in a way, Justin. Maybe that's a poor answer, but I, 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 there's more packer activity here than I think most people expected we were going to be five years ago. Mm-hmm. A bit ago, I was talking about how there was kind of a change in how cattle were bought, uh, and you and you talked about it and how your granddad saw that that change taking place there. How many cat? I mean, majority of of the cattle on feed that are coming in there, it's, it's coming from out of state. I mean, I know there's guys there that are cow calf guys and, and producing cattle, but there's pretty good chunk of these cattle that are coming in there that are all from out of the state of Iowa, right? Oh, yeah, the vast majority. I mean, we got some cow calves in, in different parts of the state, of course, but you know, I personally source a lot of cattle from your, your state. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, I had a great time in November. I went out to a funny after. 48 years of doing this, I thought, I want to go to a ranch delivery once and, and, and we'll see how that happened. Had a great time out in Bondurant, Wyoming, beautiful part of the world. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we get a lot of our cattle out of the Dakotas, Wyoming, some in Colorado, quite a few out of Montana. You know, our climate is such that, you know, the northern cattle is generally what we have to feed because they won't hold up underneath a winter, particularly a winter like we just went through, yeah, uh, which yeah. is a, a bugger, you know. Um so yeah, we we would source that northern type of, uh, cattle, and 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 that's been an interesting you know seeing that evolve too. Uh, I can remember my dad fed two year old cattle. I don't know if your family talked about that at all, you know. And, and then and then they kind of transitioned to yearlings, and yearlings didn't weigh much then. You know, maybe weighed seven hundred pounds. Now a yearling, a good one, probably weigh nine hundred pounds in August. Um, and 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 as we continue to have more drought stress, you transition even further away from less and less yearlings because you need the grass for the cows, right? Mm-hmm. And to more calf fence. So, you know, I, I, that's the one thing that I've really noticed in my little deal. We go from the tail end of that two-year-old to where we've had probably 50, 50 or 60, 40 yearlings. And now I would say around here, it's probably 90, 10, mm-hmm. 90% calves uh, compared oh, really? to yearlings. So, yeah, and all those cattle, for the most part, are sourced out of your areas yeah. like you were talking about. Huh. Interesting. I didn't realize there was that that transition. So when you look at this, it sounds to me that, you know, there's 
quite a bit of adaptability, which I think has a lot to do with the type of farmer feeder type situations. They're really adaptable to do what they need to do. So my question is, as you look at where we're at now and, and going forward, what do you think are the biggest challenges for for you all as as farmer feeders in, the, in Iowa? Well, that's a good question. And... You know, usually it's uh, uh, the pitchfork's got more than one prong on it, I guess. Um, you know, I, I I worry about regulation. I worry about things like WOTUS, different things that curb our ability to farm and feed the way we want to. You know, by the way, it's a misnomer. People think, oh, them guys, you know, spreading manure, throwing in the creek, and they're, they're not. The manure is an asset. It is <laughs> yeah, an asset, yeah. and it's treated like that, you know. Um and so I, I worry about the perception maybe too from a consumer standpoint you get the wrong group that you know thinks that uh, uh, somehow the cattle are responsible for uh, carbon emissions and all this other stuff uh, you know so, so I worry a little bit about that side of it you know uh, just and, and that's just a way of life type of a thing to, to a degree you know from a dirt on your shoe standpoint you know I, I, I certainly worry about keeping a level playing field here for the small independent cattle guy that you know, the guy with 2,500 that he still has a chance to compete and not just every, you know, instead of having uh, a thousand uh, of them, uh, some people think it'd be more efficient to have one 250,000 head feed yard. I don't think so at all. You know, it's the little guys that create this environment. It's the little guy that writes a check to his church, to his hospital, to his library, to the veterinarian and the trucks. And I mean, it's just the way it makes the thing go around. So, you know, the concern I would have is, hey, let's make sure that we have a fair chance to compete in the environment here that we have. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I I just felt like I was picking up after visiting with you a little bit, a lot of pride in what you guys do. And there's a lot of heritage, there's a lot of tradition in the state of Iowa. And so the concept of, of doing things in a very sustainable matter are really important to you all. It's ingrained in us um you know i mean it's uh, you know most of us believe that we were placed here by god to leave this place a better place than when we got here so i mean uh, they're taking care of it uh, to, to taking care of creation and, and and those that may not have that bent i think they understand that they have a, a just a responsibility to allow their son to have the same chance that i had right and to leave it better than where it was when you started so uh, it, it's very real here. It's uh, it's it's who we are. Mm-hmm. As we kind of tail out here a little bit, this this question for you: How important is the independent cattle feeder to our U.S. cattle industry? He is extremely important. In fact, to me, he is the reason why the beef tastes this good. He's the reason why it's this competitively priced. I'll give you an example. So, in my opinion, now the hog industry, right, has evolved into a you know corporately formula priced deal, right? And is it efficient? You bet. It's efficient for a couple of big processors. Is it efficient for the consumer? I don't know. Ask her what she thinks is $6 bacon. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the pork is high, and yet the producer is getting very poor price. So we got to keep enough of us independent knotheads <laughs> that are, you know, are willing, willing to work for nothing sometimes. For, for I think for the whole market's sake, integrity. Now, there's going to be some big corporate feeder that thinks I'm nuts, but that's fine. I think not only does that small independent guy make these communities work, but I think it also makes the industry work. Mm-hmm. Brad, will they continue? I mean, or, or at some point, will will something happen in such a way that the people won't, you know, as you said a bit ago, that won't keep doing it for sometimes next to nothing? Is there something that's going to pressure that? And maybe not, that wouldn't be the case in the future? 
I'm going to pull my commodity broker hat on to answer that question. Um, And if you could somehow fast forward, you're a young man, uh, you know, make a note here to the next cattle cycle. So, so get down the road, say seven years or something like that for the, for the the next cattle cycle. That's where I'm curious where the small independent guy is going to stand, you know, we're we're having a we're having a pretty good go of it. Here the winter was tough, but I mean I got a dollar seventy seven for cash cattle last yeah. week. They work, okay? You know, I so we're having a, a a great period here where because of tightening supplies, because we had record cow kill last year. We never twenty two is the biggest cow kill in the history, mm-hmm. right? Okay, mm-hmm. we've had seven percent more heifers as a percentage of steers. Because nobody was saving uh, heifers. You're a cow-calf guy. You get that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. if you don't have grass, you can't save heifers, right? So when we transition into this next cycle of where we're going to finally feed these heifers, we're going to slow down the cow, the cow kill. <laughs> we're going to go into a really, really, really tight supply environment, much tighter than it is even now. Um, so, you know, that we're going to be fine through that. But then it's that next cycle where we rebuild, like the say the, you know, I don't know if you were doing this in 2014, I assume you were, you know, the bull market of my yep. career up yep. until now, the two, uh, yeah. and then, you know, tipped over in the back half of 15 and into 16, oh. and I went through 18 months without a positive close out there. I mean, yeah. so whether or not that independent guy can survive that, I don't know. Uh, I hope so. Uh, but if you compete with a formula guy that's getting 50 bucks ahead more just because he has quantity and not quality, it's going to be tough. Uh, so that next cycle is going to be very, very challenging, I believe. You bet. Well, yeah, and I think that challenge is is set for anybody in the cow business, and I'm still paying off that school of hard knocks tuition on that uh, fallout on that last market too. But uh, Brad, I I appreciate you joining us as we head out here. Just some final comments from you. Well, I appreciate being able to tell try to tell the story. I certainly don't have a. Uh, exclusive on it. Uh, a lot of great people in this business, which is why I like being involved with the business. Uh, they're they're honest. They're independent. They're 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 hard workers. And uh, you know, I, I guess I'm proud to be part of the cattle business. Uh, and uh, thanks for giving me a couple minutes. You bet. Brad Coima, my guest here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. He a commodity future broker by day, but also he and his son are farmer feeders as well. And that aspect has been a part of his family heritage for many, many years. And like he said, from the very beginning, his story pretty much resembles a lot of the folks that you would see in the state of Iowa. And something that as you if you listen to this conversation here today with Brad no doubt you pulled out away from it the passion and the pride that he has for the state of Iowa the people that make it up uh, the work ethic that you see the type of people that they are and the type of industry that you see those independent type cattle feeders and I, I guess for myself as I reflect upon that I, I think it's something that's for personally I think is neat when you hear somebody talk about that uh, and the pride that they have of their state and of their their industry and their people that they have in there and I know each state in its own right has something to be proud of and it's something at times it's good to hear from another state but one of the other things that I pull away from this as well while each state has its own contributions that it has to our cattle industry at the end of the day though we're all still part of the bigger cattle industry and and uh, Brad reflected on that at different occasions and one of the things I'd point out too is I said when I asked him the question about some things that he is concerned about well it's things that are like over over 
regulations or waters of the U.S., things like that. And I, I, it just it was interesting to me because there's not a rancher in the country that doesn't share some of those same exact concerns. In fact, if you listen to my interview last summer with Jim Hanley, who was the executive vice president of the Florida Cattlemen's Association, while we had a great conversation about what took place in the cattle industry in Florida, he also voiced similar concerns on similar issues. And so all of this to say is that, yes, we all have our elements within our own states that we can be proud of. And Iowa has a lot to be proud of for what they contribute to our cattle industry. Yet at the end of it, for all of us, we're still part of the cattle industry. And if we're going to make through and keep on going as we as we can and try to be as profitable as we can, we're going to have to do this working together. So good conversation. I do appreciate Brad again joining us here today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Well, stay with us. Coming up next, meteorologist Don Day joins us as we take a look at our long-term weather. We'll be back on the Working Ranch Radio Show after this. And we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. As we head now and take a look at our long-term weather today, brought to you by AllFlex. Cattle identification and record keeping should be easy. So tie your visual tags, your EID tags, and your genetic data to one management number with AllFlex Match Set. You can learn more about it at AllFlexUSA.com. And joining us now is meteorologist Don Day. And Don, we're just coming out of some uh, pretty significantly warm weather across many portions uh, of the country here last week and uh, as we head into this week uh, I know one of the things we had talked about was maybe seeing some potential moisture for some areas down in that south central plains in that part of the country that has been so dry and I know even uh, down into Florida talking about that even further southeast they have been extremely dry so as we look ahead is there is there anything definitive just yet that that pattern may break and we'll start to see something in there? Well, it certainly in the last week has broken for Florida in fact uh, some flooding in parts of Florida and places like Fort Lauderdale from uh, some heavy rain and they're gonna be getting some more. Unfortunately for those core drought areas of Western Kansas, Eastern Colorado, the panhandles and parts of Nebraska, there's gonna be a little bit of precipitation coming, but it's not the storm we want. You know, we want a, a good slow moving storm system that uh, could come into that region. And here we've gone another week and all we're getting is a little bit of scattered shower and thunderstorm activity, not enough to, to really help a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we see the pattern for the second half. Here we are, believe it or not, into the second half of mm-hmm. April, heading into early May, where there should be some more opportunities coming. But we're still waiting uh, for those southern plains areas to get into the precipitation. But there has been some help down in the southeast with the Gulf Coast area picking up quite a bit of rain this week. Mm-hmm. Now, this extreme warm weather, we went from early April to just being very wintry across many portions of the country to then some really hot temperatures, which then, of course, brings melting that snowpack off, and we're talking flooding now. Yeah, in fact, uh, even with the temperatures reaching the 80s and 90s as far as uh, South Dakota over the this past week, there's actually still snow on the ground. Uh, that hasn't melted out across eastern areas of uh, North Dakota, western Minnesota, northeast South Dakota, then up into portions of southern Canada. So we've got uh, some flood stages that have been reached here over the last few days and some flooding from snowmelt up there 
uh, from this big warm-up. And one reason for the big warm-up, well, it's the time of year where the pendulum could really spring. And one thing that has happened is the deserts finally warmed up. Uh, Arizona, the deserts of Southern California, since they've had a break in the storms, they've actually built up some desert heat. And that was what was able to expand across parts of the central and west here over the last week or so. Mm -hmm. Do you sense that we could be maybe see another pretty significant storm make its way through the country? Absolutely. Um, we're in that time frame. Um, we're usually through the, let's say the, the second week of May, right around that Mother's Day weekend, is that usually when we do see these larger, bigger storm threats where you can get a storm cover multiple states, that starts to fade quite a bit by then. But up until then, we are going to be susceptible for uh, these storms. And, and one reason I say that is the breeding ground for uh, the atmospheric rivers, the breeding ground for a lot of the storms that uh, went into the western United States, especially California this winter, has been up in the Gulf of Alaska, the North Pacific. That area has just produced a lot of storms and a lot of fronts that have traversed the U.S. And that is an area that looks to remain active here for a bit longer. So despite the fact that some, many, experience some summer-like weather, uh, that does not mean we're done with the S word in some areas. Okay. All right. Well, Don, again, we appreciate you joining us here with a look at our long-term weather today. Thanks for having me. And again, that was meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather. His website is found at dayweather.com. And from there, you can also find a link to his daily video podcast, which he kicks out every Monday through Friday morning. Our weather today brought to you by AllFlex, cattle identification and record keeping. You know, it should be pretty easy and you can do it, make it easier on yourself. If you want to tie those visual tags, that EID tag and the genetic data, all to one management number with the AllFlex match sets. If you want to find out more go to their website at allflexusa.com we'll stay with us coming up after the break i'll tell you what's in store for next week's show when we return on the working ranch radio show Do you have a young child, grandchild, niece, or nephew that loves the weather and wants to learn more? Day Weather has produced a children's weather journal full of weather facts, fun weather experiments, coloring pages, and pages to record weather observations for every season of the year. The weather journal is for ages 3 to 7 and designed to be fun and educational. The interactive weather projects are fun for the whole family to take part in. For only $10, the Day Weather Weather Journal is a great gift idea for any occasion. Click on our Amazon link to order at dayweather.com. Coming up on next week's show, attorney Dale Houston out of Oklahoma will be joining us as we'll be talking on legal issues. For example, should I have a trust? Revocable versus irrevocable. Just a couple of the topics we'll cover next week, so be sure to join us. The Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine, branded number one by America's ranchers. I'm Justin Mills, and until next time, keep your chin down and your mind in the middle. So long. So long.